When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 1.6 billion people around the world live without safe shelter. And 150 million of those people have no home at all. To make a dent in those numbers, one nonprofit is coming up with creative solutions to end global homelessness. This is Sounds Good. I'm Brandon Harvey. Today's guest is Brett Hagler, the CEO of the nonprofit News Story. News Story is an organization working to end global homelessness by innovating new and creative solutions to building homes. News Story discovered that 3D printing homes can be quicker, less expensive, and produce higher quality homes than the current industry standard. And so they did something wild. They set out to build the world's first 3D printed community in Mexico. In fact, you might have seen it on the new Apple TV Plus documentary called Home that captured their journey to build the community. Before News Story was kind of officially the nonprofit that we know it as today, back in 2015, they were accepted into the competitive Y Combinator program, which is basically a startup accelerator that has helped launch a bunch of big name companies like Stripe, Airbnb, DoorDash, Coinbase, Instacart, Dropbox, Reddit, a bunch of the big boys. And only 2% of applicants get into the program and very few, if any, are nonprofits. And so it is a super big deal that News Story was accepted. And as a result, you can kind of see this in their DNA. News Story learned how to operate more like a startup than a nonprofit. They think outside the box. And since 2015, News Story has funded more than 2,300 homes for more than 11,000 people by pioneering innovative solutions to homelessness. I sat down with Brett to talk about how News Story is coming up with scalable, more efficient solutions to ending global homelessness. We got to talk about how their latest project is actually helping improve financing access for families in Latin America to get access to housing. And we got to talk about why we can be hopeful about the future of housing. I love this conversation. I am so grateful to have had this opportunity. So without any further ado, let's jump right in. I don't normally do this, but I feel like what you're doing is so innovative that I want to just start off the podcast by having you just tell me what is News Story and what do you do? Like, Tell me briefly, and then we'll dive into a bunch of the different aspects of it. News Story is a nonprofit that is um, really putting innovation um, at the at the kind of top of, of how we think about our solutions and um, and through that lens we are applying it to uh, the issue of, of global homelessness so um, to double down on our demographic a little bit uh, we're working with families right now specifically in Latin America that are living on between three to ten dollars a day and are living in inadequate housing and um, what we're trying to do is um, really understand what are what are the problems of why homes, why they can't afford homes, why they can't get access to to lending or to mortgages, and we're trying to pioneer solutions 
um, to bring to them. And that could look anywhere from um, innovating on the home cost. And that could be with, you know, really exciting and shiny technology, or it could just be through um, a better way to do architecture. Um, and so that's what we focus on. And uh, we try to prove um, new new concepts that, you know, could sound uh, innovative. And, you know, the only reason we use innovation is, or say that word, is we really just want to make things better and more efficient. Um, and that's mm. what that's what we're really on, on mission to uh, to do. So that's what we focus on. And uh, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by um, an extraordinary team that is very passionate about about bringing, um, you know, like kind of world class business practices and technology to um, families that usually don't get that standard of of support. I was on your Instagram the other day and I saw this uh, amazing photo of you at, I think the age of 24, you know, with just a bit of a, a rough idea of this thing that you wanted to create it. You were on your way to Y Combinator to potentially, you know, turn this into something bigger than just, you know, an idea on sticky notes. And so I want to kind of go back to this, this time before all of these ideas were concrete, like where did this original inspiration come from? And specifically, what was the seed of the idea where you thought, what if I did this? What if we solve this problem in a unique way? There's two things that intersect. Um, First was, I was very curious and passionate about entrepreneurship and essentially business building, right? So that was something that just caught my attention, caught my curiosity. I wanted to learn how did people do it? I was reading books, listening to podcasts. And so I was becoming a student of entrepreneurship, big or small. Um, it doesn't matter, right? From the kind of the, the larger scale entrepreneurs to, to smaller scale. I mean, there's no right or wrong way, right? But coming up with an idea and actually putting it into action and making things happen was something that I was very passionate about. I did not yet know that I would be applying that to social impact or to housing. But mm. I do say that because it wasn't, oh, I saw this problem that really broke my heart. And then I went and learned about business and entrepreneurship. And it was kind of the other way, right? So I was already really passionate about um, essentially company building or, uh, or entrepreneurship or startups. And then I came across the problem that for me, that really broke my heart was families not having access to, to safe shelter um, and understanding what that did in their lives of how it impacts their, their family dynamic, their health, both uh, mental health and physical health, their income, education, the list goes on when you don't have basic human needs. And so those two things intersected where my, my passion was really for entrepreneurship and startups. And then it became my purpose of the problem that caught my attention and that I wanted to solve. And then when I went and looked for other organizations that were trying to solve this problem, uh, I got frustrated because I couldn't find an organization that to me as a younger wannabe entrepreneur, I was actually a, a failed entrepreneur before I started a new story, but that was very interested in startups and NY Combinator. And I was, I wanted to learn from the founders of, of Airbnb and these, some of these tech companies that have, that just went from an idea to scaling and, and impacting so many people. I was already coming from that environment 
And then I was able to find my, my purpose of what I want to apply it to. But when I would try to go find other organizations that were tackling the problem of homelessness, to me, coming from everything I just shared, I couldn't find an organization that was attractive to me because mm. I wanted something that was going to be a little more forward thinking, was going to be more modern, was going to be challenging the status quo, was going to be thinking about technology and, um, and innovation and R&D and recruiting a certain kind of person to their team. And it just felt like, man, things are, it's not, it's not that it was right or wrong, but to me, it just felt a little outdated and a little too traditional for what I was personally interested in. And so that became the opportunity to say, whoa, what if from the beginning we could just, there's no board, there's no nothing like from scratch, let's try to design an organization with certain principles that, you know, that we would want. And that is how, um, you know, myself, Matthew and Alexandria, my co-founders, that's how we began. And that's when we applied to Y Combinator, uh, we were already learning from Y Combinator. So it was already kind of in our DNA. It was already who we who we were t- turning into. And then, yes, when we got into Y Combinator, that was that was a game changer for sure. And um, and we wanted to, to give it our all to make the most of of that opportunity. And sometimes sometimes you only get a, f- a few of these mega opportunities in your life. And we knew that getting into Y Combinator was one of those for us. Um, it wasn't necessarily a make or break, right? But it was it was one of these really rare opportunities to go all in and make the most of it. And you, as a someone that maybe is, a, is an activist or a social entrepreneur or is interested in social good, you've got to recognize what are those opportunities? They don't come around that often. And when you get them, how do you go all in? And I think it's really cool that it's kind of a two birds, one stone situation where you are definitely solving this problem of people, you know, not having access to adequate shelter. But in the process, you are also raising up the like a whole new generation of nonprofits and the way that they could be run. And yesterday, you and I were actually just both speaking at the same conference uh, full of nonprofit leaders. And it's really cool to think about all of these incredible nonprofits. It was like 200 of them, like learning from the innovative things that you're doing and being able to, you know, innovate and, and, and do things that maybe the quote unquote industry wasn't doing before. And so I love that approach. And I think it's also an encouragement to people who, you know, maybe aren't coming in with something that already breaks their heart. And they're just totally. saying, you know, I'm really good at this thing. Or, or more specifically, I'm really interested in getting good at this thing. Yeah. And then when that expertise intersects with an opportunity to do good, like what an incredible opportunity. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I think as I've gone more into the nonprofit, I mean, I'm in, I have great peers and the for-profit space and the nonprofit space and like the social good all over the board. And um, for my peers in the nonprofit space, I think that sometimes when someone has a, uh, a definitely a, a heart or a call for a certain cause and a purpose that is, that is beautiful and it's so inspiring to see people go after it and try to make things happen. What I think people miss sometimes, or maybe, maybe not miss, but don't put as much passion or, or focus or effort towards is the actual entrepreneurial, creative, business building side of it all, right? And 
if you think about the orgs that have actually like, and, and not every org has to has to grow or scale. Like I, I truly don't think that's the cause. That's not the call for everybody. We shouldn't measure success by by certain numbers, right? That's of course one way to look at it, but it's not the defining by any means. The defining metric of success is not how big you are, how much you've grown. And with that, the orgs that have grown, usually, whether it's the founding team or early execs or early people that get involved, like they are really excited and passionate about the company building and the business building and the entrepreneurial side of it. And those are the ones that seem to to kind of take off. And the good news is that so much of that can be learned. And I went to a, a an average school at best. I went to Florida State. <laughs> I can't even tell you one thing I remembered learning actually in college. I didn't get an MBA. I didn't go to some fancy, you know, Google or some fancy place after college. You know what I did? I read books. I listened to podcasts. I sought mentors and I watched videos. And that was how I learned. And that is available to anybody that wants to do it for, I don't want to say free, but for a very low cost, right? To be able to go on YouTube and watch videos of entrepreneurs that have gone through Y Combinator who have had successful um, and like learn from the beginning, like what did they do and how did they think about going from, you know, zero host at Airbnb to then having a thousand hosts? Like how did that happen? And it's not rocket science. Like it's usually just a lot of very manual creative work that you're not going to learn at a business school or a top MBA. And I'm kind of, just, you can tell I'm a little passionate about this because that information is out there. And from my story, it's just, it's what really helped me in my early and mid twenties have ideas and be able to, to, to bring examples to things and to be able to go into a room from a donor perspective that, that is maybe a, a founder or an executive or a CEO. And I can talk more of their language, right? I can talk, you know, almost like I'm a, one of their for-profit founders because I was learning a lot of the same things. So it's not to say that everybody has to fall in love or be so passionate about learning from for-profit startups. I don't mean that, but as far as getting excited about entrepreneurship and, and learning almost as you're excited about your cause is what's going to, I think usually going to help you accelerate your cause. So I'll stop there. That's good. No, that's really good. And I mean, I think there's so many people who are passionate about making a difference. They have all the the energy and care and maybe even knowledge about the problem and solution. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, they, but if you can't organize that into a, a good system that can tackle the problem, you know, it's not going to be as effective. And so I think that's a great opportunity. So I want to like, you know, fast forward through Y Combinator. You know, I know that that was a catalyst for organizing your ideas, giving you kind of opportunities and connections. I want to kind of fast forward up to the point where up to where you figure out, hey, what if the solution to people who don't have access to housing is 3D printing a house? Like this is <laughs> this is an outrageous idea because from what I understand, this was not a like a thing that people were doing because it's very challenging to do. How did this, you know, crazy solution come to be? To zoom out, um, how we were first thinking about this, the question that 
you have to start with and that we started with is not how do we go find some really exciting technology, right? The question was, wow, even though the homes that we're building for families are, you know, to a to a, someone in the U.S. seems low, right? It could be $10,000, right? You're like, what? You could do that for $10,000. <laughs> like, yeah, it's great. And it's, it's low cost. But what if we could get them to $6,000 or $5,000? And what would that enable from the family's perspective where they can actually start to pay for some of the house because they have income, right? And we want them to be involved and pay. But when the home is 10 grand or 20 grand, it, it just, they can't, right? They, they, it's impossible. They can't afford it. They can't pay for it. Um, and it's also cost more money to do it with hundred percent philanthropy. And so that was our framing of how do we decrease the cost from call it 10,000 and getting it closer to 6,000, right? That's the, that's the framing question. And then you go explore what are options to do that, right? Like if we had to do it, if we had to cut the cost by, you know, 40%, well, what are the options? And starting with that framework, then it's very clear what you shouldn't look into because it would only maybe move the needle by, you know, five or 10%. Mm. And then what are the things that we know are going to be super hard, but if they work, then we actually could reach our goal of, maybe cutting the cost in half, which then opens up this whole new world of what you're able to do with affordability. And so that's our framing. And then yes, 3D printing houses is has promised to do that, right? It is still very early. We are very bullish about the long-term uh, ability of 3D printing homes. And we just actually finished uh, successfully doing the first uh, neighborhood of 3D printed houses in Mexico that that families who have been living in adequate housing um, are living in. So it's a great accomplishment, but however, it's still very early in the long-term uh, kind of vision of how do we create something that can significantly decrease the cost of housing. And now we'll, we're going to continue 3D printing houses. It's, it's very you know, exciting and we're moving forward. And we're looking at other solutions as well of how do we, how do we decrease the cost of housing. And it doesn't always have to be you know, innovation is, is there's a great quote by uh, Jeff Bezos where he talks about essentially that it doesn't matter how shiny or sexy or exciting or cool or disruptive your innovation is. If customers don't adopt it, it's literally pointless, right? The only thing that's innovative is, is really customer adoption. Meaning if we did all this work for 3D printing, but yet the, the families didn't like it um, and it didn't help us hit our house metric or our, our metric of cost, then it doesn't really matter. So as you're thinking about other solutions and as news stories thinking about other solutions, it could very well be a technology play, but it also could be a different way to do, to do architecture. That's just simpler, you know, and that is easier and is, and actually uses a lot of um, just traditional methods, but, you know, we're tweaking some of the home design, you know, to require, you know, less walls or whatever you might kind of arrange. Like there's a lot of different solutions where the first thing you need to do is frame that question of what would it take to go from here to here? And that's the, that's the challenging question. And then you go explore and research and kind of put it out into the world that, Hey, we're trying to do this. And ideally it's something bold 
And when you put that out there, then you're able to attract bold ideas. I always say bold ideas attract bold people. And Mm. we've seen that over and over and over. I remember when I was in school, I studied business as well at a not cool school. And um, and I too did not learn as much as actually practicing things. But one thing I do remember was taking an advertising course from somebody who is like an amazing Portland ad executive. And Portland is known for our advertising yeah, oh yeah. game. And he talked about this idea of brainstorming via he called it open mode. There's open mode and there's closed mode. So the editing process where you're refining things, making things better, cutting things out, that's closed mode. That's saying, what do we want to like remove from the situation? And you're thinking about, you know, what can and can't fit, you know? So like we made an Instagram post uh, that just went live on Good Good Good's channel. And we had all these amazing things that were on the document. And then as we started to put it into Photoshop to actually be in the designed file, we had to start editing and taking things out. So that's closed mode. But open mode is this idea that I think that you're talking about where you're saying, the sky's the limit. Here's the problem that we're looking at. What are a million different ways that we can solve this? And some of these are going to be absolute garbage. But we won't decide that they're garbage today. We'll decide that they're garbage tomorrow during a closed mode session. And I think that the most remarkable thing is not that you're having this open mode conversation the first time, but that you're maintaining it. You're saying, all right, we found this really cool solution. It's 3D printing housing. What happens if we come up with a better idea? Let's adopt that now. It's not, we don't have to just stick with the first great idea we came up with. Which is very hard to do, right? It's very hard yeah. to, and this is where like your principles come in, right? Like you got to be, have clarity on what is most important, right? And it's not necessarily a certain innovation or a certain product, right? For us and for those listening, like what's most important is trying to drive from, in our example, a certain cost to significantly cutting that cost, right? Like that is it. And then you explore different ways to do it. And you need to be very open-minded of what's out there in order to get you to this ambitious metric that you're setting. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of this inspiring conversation with Brett Hagler. Sounds Good is sponsored by Libro FM. Libro FM is the company that lets you support a local bookstore every time you download an audiobook. And as you know, I love to use these ads as an opportunity to talk about what I am listening to and loving right now. And I have got to tell you, I cannot recommend Brandy Carlisle's brand new autobiography enough. It is so good. If you like Brandy Carlisle, you will come out loving her. If you love Brandy Carlisle, you already know that you're going to love this. So here's the thing. You have to get this on audiobook because I didn't realize this. But in between each of her beautiful chapters, she sings songs, these like beautiful acoustic versions of her songs. And they tie into the chapter in a really, really beautiful way. And it is one of the most unique audiobooks I have gotten to hear. And she's telling the story of her life. And she's talking about, of course, art, family, faith, activism. I admire this woman. I love this woman. I love her music. 
You've got to check it out or, or get whatever audiobook you want. I don't care. I want you to get whatever you love, but I, I also want you to get what I love. And as a special offer for SoundSkill listeners, Libro FM is offering two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with the code GOOD. Actually, this offer is a, a really good situation because you should get one audiobook that you love. And then you should get one audiobook that I love because you're getting two audiobooks out of this situation. All you have to do is go to the website, Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And use the promo code GOOD to get started with two audiobooks and to help support this show. Sounds Good is sponsored by Bev. Bev is a woman-owned and run canned wine brand on a mission to give a voice to women in an industry that has ignored them at best and objectified them at worst. This one is for the ladies and the good dudes who are doing it right. They have four varietals of wine. They've got Rosé, they've got Sauv Blanc, they got Pinot Gris, they got Pinot Noir. They also have Glitz, which is their sparkling wine, which is available exclusively to Bev Club subscribers. You've got to join the club to be able to get access. It's delicious, though. All Bev Club wines are crisp, they're dry, they're a little bit fizzy, and they're so refreshing and delicious. It is 85 degrees in Portland today, and maybe I'm going to have to go have one right now after this. I should just be drinking it while I do the ad. That should be allowed. They are all zero sugar with just three carbs, 100 calories per serving. The cans may look cute and tiny, but each can is a glass and a half of wine, which is absolutely perfect for when you don't want to open a whole bottle of wine just for yourself. And a whole 24-pack is equal to eight bottles of wine. We worked out a super special deal for Sounds Good listeners. You can get 20% off your first purchase, plus get completely free shipping on all of your orders. And if you're new to Bev, I highly suggest trying their best-selling, quote-unquote, ladies' night variety pack. <laughs> you can try basically all of their delicious varietals. All you have to do is go to drinkbev.com and use the code GOOD20 at checkout to claim the deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com and use the code GOOD20 to get some delicious wine and to help support this show. So let's talk about the problem of people experiencing houselessness. So maybe we can start with like, I don't know if you know this number, but like how many people are living without adequate shelter? And then specifically, what are the situations like of the people that you're serving before they get to walk into their new home? Yeah. So right now it's, um, it's hard to say it, but it's, it's around, you know, about 1.5 billion people that would live in what the United Nations would classify as inadequate housing. So that doesn't mean necessarily that everybody's out on the street. Some certainly are, but they're in pieced together shacks or tents. Um, they're trying to self-build structures that, you know, are on dirt floor. And it's just, it, it's, it's a pieced together shelter, right? It's, it's not a adequate home. And so it's a very large number. Um, I would argue aside from climate change, it's the largest and most expensive problem in humanity when you mm. start to add up the numbers, right? So that's that's the starting point, which can be quite paralyzing and overwhelming sometimes. But and then where families are coming from, uh, the families that we're working with, uh, they're coming from 
environments where they don't have safety, and that could be um, they don't have physical safety, psychological safety, and they don't have um, reliable shelter. So at night, when it rains or storms, that means uh, there could be a little bit of flooding in where they're living, and they, they can't sleep at night when that happens, right? Or now, because there's water uh, in the area, and then you know mosquitoes are going to come in, and it's still water, and they're going to that's going to get the kids sick, right? Or they don't have anywhere to to securely store any of their belongings or product. So it's really hard to get a micro loan and go put your heart and soul into building something, and then not have literally you don't have a you don't have any way to to safely um, store what you just work so hard on. So, you know, the list goes on. Um, and it's just so clear that when you don't have the basic human needs, you live in what we just call survival mode. You're just, it doesn't matter usually how creative you are, how hardworking you are, how intelligent you are when that's your environment. It's, uh, really just surviving is at the top of your list. So, those are the families that um, that we partner with, and we get to to partner with them and help them move into um, an entirely new lived experience. And that's with a, a multi generational home. Uh, these are smaller homes. You know, they're between five hundred to seven hundred square feet, but they are built to last. And it is about as black and white of a difference as it gets um, for these families. And that. That makes their income increase, their health it just goes off the charts and how much better it is, the long list of what happens. Um, so that's who we work with. In my mind, as you're talking about this, it, it almost conjures this idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's exactly uh, what it is. Yeah. It, you know, and of course, just dealing with the problem of somebody not having adequate shelter that's a human rights problem that should be addressed for that reason alone. But for me, I, I get excited about that next level of opportunity. Because when people ask me, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who started a company focused on hope. And when people ask me, like, why do you feel hopeful? One of the things that always comes to mind for me is this idea that there is so much creativity and innovation all around the world, but not everybody has as much access and opportunity to bring right. those ideas to life as you and me and the privilege that we carry. And so what does it look like when a whole new group of people has this next level amount of stability and they get to bring their ideas that are so different than mine and so much more you know, informed by different experiences to solve problems in ways that I would never think to. And so it's really cool to think about that secondary impact that you get to bring to the table. 100%. That's, that's it. That's the dream. I'm currently reading this book called um, The Color of Law about the basically the forgotten history about how the U.S. government segregated the United States through housing. Have you, have you read this or heard of this? I haven't. I heard of it, but I personally haven't read it, unfortunately. So I'm like still super early on. But, you know, it, it's basically diving into this idea of how like loans and housing were explicitly given to white people in the 1930s, but black people weren't given access. And then you fast forward decades and we can see the impact of this where, you know, African-Americans' average incomes are like, way lower than white incomes. And then specifically, I remember this stat, African-American wealth is about 5% of white wealth. And, and wealth usually comes from the equity people have in their homes. And so I'm also curious about 
that aspect, as you're building housing and making housing uniquely accessible to people who didn't have access to it before, what do you hope will be kind of the generational impact of housing? Yeah, it's interesting how you bring this up. Um, so new, new story, we do not work in the U.S. Um, is a hard choice. I, we strongly considered it last year, but um, we decided that as still a younger organization, we just we optimize um, for focus and trying to be best at um, bringing a product to a certain demographic. And so who knows, long-term we'll see, but right now uh, we're just focused on Latin America and really Mexico in the coming years. And so I, I, I tee that up just to say um, loans and access to a mortgage or financing is actually the number one thing we're working on this year for the families that we work with. One of our big, big, big dreams and a huge unlock would be if we can prove that the demographic we work with, you know, a lot of things have to work together on this. You have to decrease the cost so that they can afford more of an actual mortgage payment, right? But if we can prove that these families are worth lending a certain amount to, and we can prove their creditworthiness, then that would ideally unlock a, a whole new opportunity for, for lending uh, and mortgages to these families. Where right now, they cannot get any kind of financing or lending or mortgage, right? So it's somewhat similar to what you just described, Brandon, of, yeah, they, they can't get, they don't have access. They can't get access to loans and they don't have you know enough cash to build their own house. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to unlock right now. And so that's kind of our, our big innovation pilot for the year is, is around uh, financing and trying to innovate a, a product, a financing product of a combination of a down payment by the families, a loan that will be paid back over five years, essentially a, a micro mortgage. Um, and then the rest will use philanthropy to subsidize. So that's what we're working on. That's fascinating. And then where will, so when people are paying this mortgage, because you're a nonprofit organization, where does that money go back to? Like what's kind of the thought process on that? Yeah, it either goes back to um, the lender, to the bank, if we get it from a bank, or it can go back, you know, news story can kind of serve as essentially as a bank. And then we would just repurpose um, what's being paid back. I feel like our whole generation, it definitely like sounds good listeners, you know, think about how we all fell in love with Tom's shoes as a way to say, wow, like what a cool way to make a difference. I buy shoes. It makes a difference in this community. And then years later, we kind of start to zoom out and go, wait, this may be disruptive to the community. What happens for a local shoemaker in that town or a shoe shop or something like that? How do you kind of think about and navigate this idea of how you know creating housing is affecting the communities you serve? So how we build housing, it's with um, 100% local labor, 100% local material, and 100% local home building companies and nonprofits. Mm. So what New Story is doing is we're bringing in financing and capital. That's one. Um, and then two, we're bringing in innovation, home designs, and processes to make everything ideally more effective, more streamlined, and more more efficient. So we go all straight through the local economy. And even with the loans, what we want to do is, is have it all be done, uh, have it be localized. And we actually want to try to make the local market work as much as we possibly can. And then, and then because we are choosing to serve a demographic that is really the poorest of the poor, whatever 
the market can't serve, then that's what we want to use philanthropy to subsidize. It's also the most scalable way to do it from our perspective. And so that's how we do all of our work. And, um, and that's what we're excited to, to scale out. The other thing I'll say about Tom's and some of the other things that happen, like, you know, sometimes as social entrepreneurs or do-gooders, sometimes you're going to have ideas and in the moment they're going to seem good. And even when you're putting it into action, it's going to seem good and feel good. And um, anecdotally, it, it, it makes sense, right? And then maybe on maybe later on you learn that uh, that wasn't the best thing to do. I fear that sometimes people are so cautious to like actually try something because it may not be the most perfect, like politically correct, like perfect way to do it. Where oftentimes, like if you have a good intent, obviously you need to be smart. And you, yes, for sure, you need to be smart about how is this impacting families, but get started, right? Like Tom's got started. They took a lot of learnings and what they're going to do over the next decade, I think is going to be amazing, you know? And so um, I would just encourage people that, um, yes, we obviously want to be as smart and as wise as possible, uh, but just don't let that paralyze you from from trying to start something uh, or trying to make an, trying to make an impact. Totally. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I love Blake and I think that Tom's has done a great job of innovating and case in point, actually, I think it was about a year or two ago, they said, Hey, we're actually pivoting our giving model. And now it's not that you uh, buy one and we give one shoe, but it's specifically we, for every shoe you buy, we are supporting these organizations. And they chose some ballsy organizations. You know, they're fighting for gun reform, criminal justice reform. So Dave, when you know better, you can do better. And you know, I think everybody should come in informed. And as you learn new things, you know, just like we talked about at the beginning, you know, stay in open mode, be ready to pivot and change. And I think like you and Tom's have proven that it's possible and and hopefully we can all continue to learn. Yeah. I think when you're, especially when your social problems are, they're so complex, they're so multifaceted, right? Like you're going to run up against challenges. We, We have a phrase internally, a new story that we say is a, We call it DMFB. That's the little phrase. And we say it sometimes when uh, we are doing our best and when we make a mistake and we didn't have all the answers and we didn't, you know, maybe know everything perfectly. um, And we just say, sorry, you know, doing my effing best. DMFB, (laughs) And that's sometimes just how it goes. And then it's about, are you humble enough to, to desire to learn and to get better. And I mean, obviously you have to have that. If you don't have that, you're toast. And you don't, I don't think you deserve to, to kind of move on. But with that humility, you can, you can learn and change. 100%. And yeah, we, I mean, if you go to our Instagram right now, you look at the post we just posted. And so at the time of, you know, listeners listening to this is probably a few weeks old, but you know, you'll see, we totally screwed up on a post recently and uh, we just owned the mistake. We communicated it. We made the edit and the change publicly and uh, we'll continue to make mistakes. But as long as we're open to that to that correction, I think it's great. And also, we love it when people come and say, hey, we see that you're trying to do good here, but here is a way to be better. You know, here's a way to be best. And that, uh, I'm so grateful for that. And we all get to play a role in that. 100%. As my final question for this conversation, in the midst of such an immense challenge, you know, we've got more than a billion people who don't have access to adequate housing, how are you maintaining a sense of hope to 
to carry you through that? And what is it that, that you're looking forward to and, and feeling hopeful about? There's two things. Um, one is, you know, don't, don't be afraid of work that has no end. And sometimes if you pick a challenge that is so big, it's okay if it doesn't get solved in your lifetime, right? That's, you look at all of the, whether it's activists or entrepreneurs throughout history, you just got to know that, right? You got to know that you're intentionally choosing to take on something that, you know, is, is near impossible to happen in a certain time period. But what you're going to do is you're going to allocate your resources and your effort to trying to make the biggest dent and contribution that you can to it, right? So if you can't 100% change the problem, or in this case, just for an example, 100% change the whole world, the whole world for what you want it to be, what you do have the power for, sorry if this sounds cheesy, it's just so real. Um, you do have the power to to change the world for you know a few families, right? Or mm. 100 families, or now we're getting close to 100,000 people. And then we have a decade goal of getting to a million people, right? And so you set your sights on things that that are achievable and are so so life-changing for the people that you work with. And so to answer your question, that is, that's what gives us hope and inspiration is we're going to do the best we can. We're going to try to continue to get better and better and better. And, you know, we'll see long-term where, where that takes us. But, you know, right now we have a, we have a decade goal of getting to getting to a million people, which would be about 220,000 uh, houses. So that's what we're focused on. That's Brett Hagner, CEO of News Story. You can learn more about News Story, you can make a donation, and you can view their incredible 3D printed homes all on their website, newsstorycharity.org. By the way, they are hiring. Brett wanted me to tell y'all because he knows that uh, we have such a cool community. So go check out their job listings on their website. If you apply, if you get a job, you have to let me know. Send me a DM, shoot us an email. Again, it's newsstorycharity.org. Dot org to do all of that. This podcast was created by Good Good Good. At Good Good Good, we help you feel more hopeful and do more good. You can find more good news and ways to make a difference in our weekly email newsletter, our beautiful print good newspaper, or online at goodgoodgood.co. This episode was created by Kaylee Thompson, Megan Burns, and me, Brandon Harvey. It was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can visit their website at soundonsoundoff.com please make sure to hit the follow button if you listened to this episode and you're not already subscribed. It'll help you get access to all of our good news stories each and every week. If you have a favorite episode that you've listened to in the past or this is your new favorite episode, share it on your Instagram stories. Tell a friend. We want more people to get to celebrate good news and take good action. And with that, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and take one action step to end homelessness. And we'll be back next week with more good news and good action. Sound good?